0: Welcome to Weird Studies. I'm JF Martel. Our topic for today is an essay by Phil that was published in the esteemed academic journal Representations back in 2008. Entitled Taboo Time and Belief in Exotica, it argues that 1950s mood music, later called Exotica by record collectors, was really just one instance, though a particularly strong one, of a background operation that is always at work in modern consciousness, namely the aestheticization of life and, quote, the absorption of the real into the imaginary. Exotica has been rightly criticized for its shameless colonialism, its embrace of cliché and stereotype in the name of seeking the exotic and the erotic beyond the boundaries of the white American suburb. But Phil argues that if you stop there, you might miss the element that makes Exotica and its various manifestations, not all of which are seen as controversial, so compelling for modern Westerners and so prone to reinserting itself into our collective imagination again and again. In eroding the boundary between living and dreaming, in bringing forth strange visions of other worlds where the things we think are most stable and secure have betrayed their brittleness and fluidity, Exotica can become for us a pathway to the marvelous. Exotica calls on us to believe in what we have been told we ought not to believe in, to become, quote, the primitives of an unknown culture even as we remain the decadence of a culture we know all too well. Phil's essay was recently included in a best-of anthology of Representation's articles called Weird Scholarship. The link's in the show notes. In what follows, it serves as a map for an expedition into that liminal zone that straddles the world of facts and the realm of phantasm. Of the brave souls who ventured into that zone in the past, few have returned to tell the tale, of course— Those who have speak of strange sites and landmarks, among them something called the Weird Studies Patreon Community. There, expatriates of the real world have established a colony reminiscent of the boldest experiments of the 1960s. Membership is rather cheap, ranging from $1 to $6 per lunar cycle. So if you're tired of your dreary existence on Cedar Grove Lane, just slip on that smoking jacket, pour yourself a Mai Tai and follow the familiar sound of the ever unfamiliar gong. was um editing our extra, and there's just this hilarious part where we're talking about how stupid young people are. <laughs> just completely forgetting for a moment that I think pretty much like 65 to 70 percent of our audience are people under 30 or under 35. Mm-hmm. And then uh <laughs> and you're being like at one point you say, um, you know, the reason old people have always thought young people are stupid is because young people are stupid. And and I said and I'm like I'm trying to be char I'm like, Yeah, compare it to older people. And in the background you're like, compared to anything <laughs>
1: <laughs> compared to anything. No, I was just I was I was having fun. I know. I was and just having fun.
0: Some people took
1: it um
0: negatively, but that's okay.
1: Uh nothing I say should be taken seriously by anybody. <laughs> <laughs> not not to be taken internally For amusement purposes only As um, right. as pinball machines used to say Well wasn't that going to be our slogan For entertainment purposes only Yeah I, I didn't want people to be stuck In the idea that anything you say Is quote unquote what I really think Yeah Like fuck I don't know what I really think And I sure as hell don't think Somebody out there listening to me talk Is going to be able to understand What I really think Right. You know, no. chances are there's very few people who can accurately say, I know you better than you know yourself. Yeah.
0: But we are getting a, a nice kind of um, privileged view of your internal workings today, because we're, we're talking about a paper you wrote, mm. a classic, a modern classic.
1: <laughs> of well, uh, if, if by classic you mean old, then sure. If this is a paper that was published in 2009, but I did the most writing and thinking about it in the period from 2003 to 2005 when I was living in California. In fact, the experience of living in California probably conditioned the genesis of that piece. So it's old. It feels like California. It has like California,
0: that weird California light bathes it somehow. Yeah, yeah, I I was feeling that when I wrote it. The reason why I said a modern classic is because it's been recently anthologized or brought, included Ah, in an anthology,
1: right? Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I'm actually kind of proud of this. So the essay, Taboo, colon, Time and Belief in Exotica, published in Representations in 2009. Representations is an important academic journal. It is an interdisciplinary journal of the humanities. And it's always been considered the sort of flagship publication of New Historicism, Mm. which TBH, never really understood what New Historicism was supposed to be, something to do with thick description, with seeing the universe in a grain of sand, the grain of sand in this metaphor being some little often marginal piece of culture. Uh, new historicism is a tendency vague enough to admit of a lot of different tendencies. I always kind of liked representations, the essays that appeared in it always had a lot more wit and style than the sort of things you normally see in academic publishing. And that commitment to finding odd little cultural artifacts and splitting them open and finding out all of the... Cultural background that it was encoded in them that was always kind of congenial to me. I always liked doing that anyway. So, I had a wildly ambitious notion back in the day to get this published in Representations, which was a super long shot because it's not easy to get your shit published there. They're very, you know, it's an exclusive club, but much to my surprise, it was published there. And what I find particularly, I don't know. Gratifying? Rewarding. Yeah. Gratifying. Gratifying to the old ego. It's just recently, Representations decided to anthologize a number of its classic articles. And these are articles by, for the most part, people who are way bigger fish than me in the academic game. People like Terry Castle or Elaine Scarry. But um, the special anthology, it's a web-only anthology titled Weird Scholarship from Curious to Rare. And uh, it reads, of the many cross-disciplinary and topical strands that have emerged from nearly 40 years of representations in print, one stands out, a kind of research that perhaps originated here in our pages and remains difficult to find elsewhere, what might fondly be called weird scholarship. We invite you to dip into a virtual issue featuring some of the most representative examples in this vein, available free of charge for a limited time. And we will put the link to that in the show notes, but you can find my essay along with, I think, 13 others um, and it's available for free. Hmm. Anyway, the reason to mention this is mostly just to brag, to flex. Yeah. Um, I was tremendously proud as a young scholar just starting out to get my article published by Representations. And as an older, grizzled scholar, delighted to Discovered had been selected as part of a, a collection of weird scholarship, which, so far as I know, had nothing to do with me being the host of a podcast called Weird Studies. I think that was just a coincidence. But the, yeah, <laughs> but this feels like a capstone. It feels like you're done with this. this That's right. I can full, retire now. Full on circle. All the money I'm going to get from having from this f- obscure academic <laughs> article published for free on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: The first thing I want to say about this is that it reminded me of why I decided to study history or no, that's not quite right. I I did history in university, but I I stopped reading history after I graduated, not because I didn't like it, but because I felt for all those years or those those short four years, I felt like I was missing out on all the other stuff I wanted to read. So psychologically, I just went straight into philosophy and other things after I graduated, and uh, just happened to never really read much history again, especially not this type of cultural history, which was my favorite kind. and so reading it really rekindled that interest for me or reminded me that I had this interest to begin with in in that sort of I like the way you tried to summarize what the new historicism is, you know seeing the the universe in a grain of sand, that's the feeling I get when I read really good cultural history. I feel like it's got its tendrils shooting out across the galaxy and everything could be part. You don't know what's coming next. Anything could be included in this analysis. It's just this wonderfully poetic way of thinking about the past. And so I found this to be an exemplary um, Oh an exemplary example <laughs> of, <laughs> of of this type of thing. And like I was saying on Discord before we started, this is one of the rare academic articles that I've read, at least, that has a major plot twist, such that if you don't read to the end and go citing it, you might be... Um, Outing yourself as a skimmer of articles, (laughs) as opposed to a reader, because it starts in one place and ends in another. And the place where it ends, to some extent, undermines the apparent perspective of the first half. And so when a scholar does that, it's a very Borgesian move to pull. And it's just one more reason to love this piece. And there are lots more that we'll get into. But, you know, and and why are we talking about this? So it's, it's the title is Taboo time and belief in exotica. And here exotica is, I mean, Phil will get into it in more detail, but uh, briefly, exotica is a general, I I wouldn't say genre of cultural artifact, product, music, including music and film, but specifically music in this article, especially music in this article. It's more like a mode, right? Than a genre. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. A, 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 A creative, an aesthetic mode that prevailed, I guess, or or, or was prevalent in the 1950s especially, A, a little bit before, a little bit after. And what Phil is doing in this piece is exploring what Exotica was and how actually the aesthetic that Exotica represents was actually operative even in the 60s. And even to this day, there's a whole imaginal space that it opens up that remains very much part of our cultural existence.
1: So, And we are extremely ambivalent about it to the extent that we either don't recognize it at all or when we do, we erect barriers of critical distance so that we are not in danger of being contaminated by it yeah. um, and yet the threat of contamination continues And perhaps what you mean by the twist ending is the first part, if you only read the first part, you might think that I was doing something very typical of critical scholars when they write about exotica pop or any art that engages in the conventionalized representation of others, cultural others, ethnic others. You know, if you just read the first part of my paper, you would assume that I was doing the same thing as everybody else, reminding the reader of how this is at best in bad taste and at worst, frankly, racist and warning the reader thereby to take distance from this stuff, to not take it too seriously or take it seriously only as a manifestation or symptom of some cultural ill. But then at the end, I'm like, yeah, but the problem is – When you do that, you are, in a sense, not really engaging with this art at all, or you're not engaging with it on its own terms, on the terms by which it itself would like you to play with it, which is to say, in a spirit, not only of engagement, but identification, a kind of blurring of the boundary between representation and reality or, you know, reality and fiction, Yeah, Um, that you have to go with it, you have to be frankly, a little crazy. And that is the one... And when I say a little crazy, I mean in the sense of um, you have to be ecstatic. If you think about what the word ecstatic means, ecstasis, being outside of yourself, you have to be beside yourself. And this quality of being beside yourself, I was trying to interpret it entirely within what we might call the imminent frame in this essay. But with the advantage of, I don't know, 15 or so years hindsight, I realized that this was my first faltering step of trying to theorize magic and magical modes of engagement. That what I really wanted to say in that twist ending is that this is a kind of magic work it demands a kind of magical hermeneutics, magical interpretation. Yeah. And in as much as we are unwilling to grant that, which if you're an academic, you almost certainly are then you are forever on the outside of the aesthetic experience that this kind of art offers.
0: So now that you've uh, properly uh, wet our listeners' appetite for the weird part in all this because it it will come. This is this couldn't be more relevant to our project, I think. But let's take a step back and talk a little bit about what exotica like is. What exotica yeah. is, yeah. Yeah. So uh, we have touched on this before. This article came up in a past
1: episode. I can't remember which one. Well, and also Michael Garfield right. had me on his show and we were talking about this essay. Actually, I remember. Uh, the Trash Stratum episodes. We talked about the oh, Jack Smith oh, yeah. piece on the perfect filmic appositeness of Maria Montez. One of my favorite pieces of writing from that period, from that post-war avant-garde East Coast ferment. Anyway, sorry, you were you were going to say.
0: So we talked about it there. We talked about Exotica and this piece briefly in our discussion of Ghostface Killers' uh, Underwater, right. So this is one of the little threads that have, we've been weaving through the show, but now it's coming to the forefront. And it's a great opportunity to discuss a bunch of ideas, specifically from my end, a lot of Deleuzian stuff that I'd like to bring in without hijacking the show. But
1: Oh, uh, go ahead. But we'll see where it goes. But let's start with Exotica itself. What What is it? Well, in the narrowest definition, it refers to a kind of pop music popular in the... Late 40s through the 50s, and then becoming massively unpopular rather suddenly in the early 60s. Music associated with artists like, I mean, maybe most preeminently, Les Baxter, who I write about a certain amount in this essay, but also Ima Sumac, the famous Peruvian singer of fake lore, like pop songs that are supposed to be, you know, Andean mountain songs or whatever, but. They're just songs written by studio pros in Glendale or whatever. Yeah. I had a friend who actually was a guitarist who toured with Ema Sumek's band at the end of her career. Apparently, she was extremely difficult to work with. Oh, really? Neither neither here nor there. But yeah. So, anyway, this is a kind of pop music that was, I like to say, it's film music for daydreams. It's film music without the film. Yeah, I like that. It's a kind of music that deploys a vocabulary of conventionalized musical figures to depict conventionalized others. Like for example, there's a Les Baxter track called Hong Kong Cable Car. And all of his tracks have titles like that. Most of them are instrumental, or if they have voices, they're wordless vocalists people singing a lot of oohs and ahs.
0: It's essentially a type of lounge music, isn't it?
1: Yeah, or to use the term that they would have used at the time, mood music. Instrumental music you would play in the background to cast a sort of a, just to give you kind of a mood. So like, you know, Les Baxter was very fond of the music of Igor Stravinsky, Maurice Ravel, Claude Debussy, the impressionist early 20th century modernist masters who themselves had a lot of interest in creating kind of exotic motifs so like stravinsky's rite of spring for example wants to create an imaginary place like a primeval russian tribe sacrificing a virgin to the spring in a kind of fertility rite you know what's the pagan name? mood um, yeah yeah. So to capture that mood of a barbaric, archaic, dimly perceived, perhaps incomprehensible past, Stravinsky did certain things like, for example, creating ostinati little short motives that you just repeat again and again. Sort of like, you know, it's a fancy term for like uh, what happens in the baseline of almost any rock song you care to mention. Those are all ostinato bass lines. You have a little riff that you just keep repeating.
0: Repetition has always been associated with a kind of pre-rational, tribal, you know, like... uh, Right, right. Right. Because for all the reasons we discussed when we talk about Freud's uh, Beyond the Pleasure Principle, repetition is a throwback to a pre-modern or pre-rational mode.
1: Yeah. But then Stravinsky would also take that kind of repetition of figures and then give you multiple planes or strata, like in a layer cake, of ostinati, multiple ostinatos, that interlock and create a very powerful feeling of like motor drive, a very powerful feeling of pulse. You know, the famous Danse des Adolescents, right at the beginning of the Rite of Spring, is probably the best known example where you have an E major and E flat major chord juxtaposed to one another, pounding out an ostinato to which the dancers sort of hop up and down in a very unballetic way. Rite Spring actually gives you a whole bunch of primitive signifiers, not only in the music. I've described that texture of planing ostinatos as one of the musical signs or signatures of the primitive, the barbaric, but it's also juxtaposed to things that the dancers are doing. In the original, in Nijinsky's original choreography, instead of the classic ballet move where you're arching your body always upwards, the gestures are always upwards into the air, ethereal, defying gravity. Nijinsky very purposefully had the dancers, especially in *Dans des Adolescents, stomping and hopping in a kind of crouch the way the dancers are supposed to look is very much the way Doris Lessing describes Ben in The Fifth Child. Right. Hunched and muscular and possessed of an incomprehensible and brutish purposiveness and drive. Hypercorporeality to offset
0: yes. the to challenge the modern kind of ethereal yes. Uh, etherealness of ballet in general. Right. So there's this kind right. of reversal of of everything.
1: Right. And it was that kind of stuff, really, that was in Les Baxter's mind when, you know, as a arranger and composer who is creating music in Hollywood studios to create albums of mood music for people in their space age ranch style homes to sip a martini or perhaps a Mai Tai by the pool. You know, you want to sort of transport yourself mentally into the jungles of Polynesia or, you know, a Hong Kong street market right. or even someplace that you couldn't even theoretically visit, like the bottom of the ocean or the... moon, some exotic place. Yeah. Some film scenario for you to play in your mind while you're sitting in your suburban lounge, but you're creating a movie in your head with yourself as the explorer out there having adventures, encountering mysterious and exotic others and possibly having sex with them. James Kirk style. Yeah, there's always an intimation of sensuality or, or of Absolutely. sexual encounter. In Exotica, there's always this tension between the pull of the unknown, but also your own sort of colonialist prerogatives to remain superior somehow to the situation and always able to leave at a moment's notice. And so there's also the separation as well as the intimacy. You dream of these far off locales, but the framing of it within the technologized present in your lounge, listening to your hi-fi with your cocktail in hand, that tension between identification and distance is definitely a part of that mid-century Cold War exotica moment.
0: Right. And a lot of the uh, well-founded accusations of racism or whatever might have something to do with the way that uh, mainstream American culture or Western culture in this music is kind of interpreted as this neutral background against which all these exotic others manifest and, and mix together, right? So you can mix some Peruvian beats with like... I don't know, like Japanese shakuhati or whatever. I'm not sure. I don't know if that was done, but there are two primal spaces. There's the who we are listening to this music and then everybody else kind of just um, preparing for us a kind of spectacle of exoticism that we can then consume,
1: right? Right. So I just realized I left something hanging a while ago before you went up to yell at your children. Uh, I was talking about, you should have heard him, listener. We cut that part out. He was just screaming uncontrollably for like 10 minutes. Put a hole up. in the wall. <laughs> Child protective services have been called. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, no, but I was I mentioned this track by Les Baxter called Hong Kong Cable Car. Right. And you know Hong Kong Cable Car in a way works somewhat similarly to something like the Rite of Spring, which isn't to say that I'm putting them on the same cultural level, obviously. But just as Stravinsky... Nijinsky and their collaborators are coming up with signifiers of a primitive alterity, a a primitive otherness, and deploying those in a way that, you know, if you're a listener in 1913, listening to Rite of Spring, and you hear that texture of plain ostinatos and that pulse-oriented texture, those are signs that you're prepared if you've spent a lot of time listening to other pieces of late 19th century Russian art music, your, your mind is prepared to understand what those things mean, that those things relate to a certain place that you have in the imagination. They trigger those associations. Right. But by the time we get to the 50s and we're seeing the big classics of Les Baxter's Exotica, Voice of the Tabe with Ima Sumac, or uh, Ritual of the Savage, Sacre du Sauvage, as a subtitle, like expressly calling back to the Rite of Spring, Uh, Sacre du Printemps. Baxter is trying to do the same thing, use conventionalized musical gestures that he's borrowing from Stravinsky and also the French Impressionists in order to trigger similar places in the mind just the way film music does so like you know if you're watching an old jungle flick or the kind of movie that indiana jones and the raiders of the lost ark is sending up slash crushing on imagine a cut to hong kong and then suddenly you hear the crash of a gong That's going to be like a very conventional way that the soundtrack can kind of set the scene. Before you even see anything that looks Asian, you're going to hear something that sounds Asian. Now, whether or not it really is Asian or not is quite another thing, because sometimes these conventionalized musical figures don't respond to any actual music practice in the real world. Indeed, the picture of people that emerges in exotica representations often don't correspond to real people either. I mean, Rite of Spring, Stravinsky and the rest of them were trying to imagine a culture that really didn't exist, just imagining a primeval Russian culture that by definition could never have survived in the archaeological record. So the coming up with this out of whole cloth. But the point is, it's a mode of signification that sort of the moment you hear these signs deployed, there's a kind of blatancy to them, a way that they just automatically conjure up elements of the dream life. So the crash of the gong that you hear at the beginning of Les Baxter's Hong Kong cable car coming as inevitably as Christmas, you are meant to hear that and automatically just imagine like a Hong Kong alleyway or Hong Kong market or something. And so that's how this music works.
0: Except the difference between what the Rite of Spring is doing and and Exotica is that I don't think the Rite of Spring presented itself as an accurate journey to a lost age that was named or located in any way. Whereas Exotica, in your article, you talk about liner notes and how the liner notes tended to... Sell this idea that this is what's going on in Sub-Saharan Africa. Some of these beats have never been heard by the white man. That sort of thing, you know. Like uh, right. there's a lot of that type of rhetoric that I think that with Rite of Spring, I, I'm not familiar with the deep history of that ballet at all. But my impression is that the fantastical element of all that was kind of primary for the Rite of Spring. There was never. Uh, a pretense that this was accurately reviving or resurrecting some. Right. I guess the difference is that Rite of Spring is making a a historical claim to be reviving something from the deep past, whereas this is a geographic claim or ethnographic claim, as you say, that Exotica is trying to be a kind of ethnography, of yeah. people who currently exist, but that are outside of the, the West. I refer to it as
1: ethnographic pulp fiction. Right, exactly. But that doesn't you know? present itself as fiction. But it's complicated and it's complicated on both ends. Okay, so since I brought up the of spring, I'm going to stay there for just a second longer. You're quite right that the way... Pop exotica a la Les Baxter comes off versus how the Rite of Spring comes off. Different cultures, different historical moments, different cultural registers. I mean, pop exotica is about as middle brow as it gets. Right. And like a lot of American pop culture, this is sort of the genius of pop culture. It happily, unselfconsciously cannibalizes the past it creates a kind of bricolage of past motifs to do the job that it has to do, which in this case is to provide a film music for daydreams. And the Rite of Spring is doing something a little bit different. So yeah, I don't want to overstate the connections, but at the same time, okay, so I'm going to talk first about Rite of Spring. Rite of Spring, of course, it's understood as a ballet that imagines something that maybe never existed. Mm-hmm. The musicologist Richard Taruskin has pointed out, it seems to me very convincingly, you know, Rite of Spring is famous for having sparked a riot. Right, right. But Taruskin pointed out, we always act like, oh, it's the music was so shocking, like that's why people rioted. But he makes the argument, I think, quite compellingly that actually it's something about the human that is suggested by this art. Mm. That while people are not accepting it as an ethnographic statement, they nevertheless were profoundly disturbed by what it seemed to be saying about human being and the origins of human culture or the origins of the human. Um, Ideas that were taken seriously enough that people were willing to throw hands. And there's a very early review of the Rite of Spring, one of the first reviews of Rite of Spring by a French critic named Jacques Riviere. And he said, the Rite is a biological ballet. And he writes, it is not just the dance of the most primitive man, it is also the dance before there was man. Ah. There is something profoundly blind in this dance. There is an enormous question being carried about by all these creatures moving before our eyes. It is in no way distinct from themselves. They carry it about with them without understanding it, like an animal that turns in its cage never tires of butting its forehead against the bars. They have no other organ than their whole organism, and it is with that that they carry out their search. They go hither and thither and stop. They throw themselves forward like a load and wait. Nothing precedes them. There is nothing to rejoin, no ideal to regain, just as with the blood within them without any reason save its pumping, knocks against the walls of their skull, so they ask for issue in succession. And little by little, by dint of their patience and persistence, a sort of answer comes that is nothing other than themselves, which also meshes with their physical being and which is life. Right.
0: That's amazing.
1: That's Isn't that amazing. an amazing piece of writing? And yeah. this is articulating something genuinely disturbing about the Rite of Spring. I said in – I forget which episode. It might have been on Patreon Extra that the Rite of Spring is still casting ripples of influence for more than 100 years later. And that's one reason why is because every time we return to the imaginal world of the Rite of Spring, we return to that world of man before man and so all of this however is just to say right a spring it's just fun times it's just a diagolev thing another diagolev astonish me production we get that it's all smoke and mirrors is for amusement purposes only and yet not really. People are going to listen to that or watch that ballet and see it as a representation of something true about the archaic stratum of human beings. Right. And it's that uneasiness between like whether we're looking at representation or the real thing that I feel is carried forth into mid-century pop exotica, except in a pulp register.
0: it's hard for me to listen to Exotica and hear it as one would have heard it in 1951. So right after the war. But I suspect that there was a, even at the time, a generous dollop of irony in how people, at least how Baxter perceived this music. Am I right? Certainly. Yeah. Certainly. Right.
1: Okay. So- um, And yet- Yeah. All I mean, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm interrupting you. And yet, The liner notes are always making ridiculous and straight-faced claims to ethnographic authenticity. Right.
0: But then what you do brilliantly in your article is you carry this. So you look at that, what was going on in Exotica in the 50s. And then you look at what the counterculture was doing in the 60s, or specifically what you refer to as the movement, so the hippie movement, essentially.
1: You know, the, the sort of compound of the hippies, the countercultural left, and also the more political, like Marxist left. That's what I call the movement. It's a very general catch-all for yeah. that historical movement. Yeah, I
0: guess counterculture is the right term for it, too. But the movement is more specific because it excludes certain... Uh, much more praxis-oriented movements that I think can be excluded from this in a certain yes. way, to a certain extent. Yes, I think but you're the, right. The point is that although, as you point out, the people who were part of the movement in the 60s, the artists, the revolutionaries, the hippies, the the freaks, would have rejected exotica as a living signifier of everything that they wanted to reject, Right. They nevertheless enacted the same aesthetic. You write, in the 1950s, those enthralled by exotica representations drew a frame around their encounter with otherness. But in the 1960s, they sought to step through that frame. Nevertheless, the frame is there. The exotic is still framed, but the movement just claims to be on the far side of the frame. Um, So you still have the same kind of dialectic going on of, of sameness and difference and all that. And, yeah. Yeah. Or distance and intimacy. Right. So, and then of course you begin the article, you open it with an epigraph, like a, three paragraphs from Fight Club, the novel, where Tyler Durden is basically painting a picture for the protagonist, from the, for the narrator of... What will happen when after the apocalypse where the, the cities get overgrown again and get restored to this primeval state and um, right. animals are running rampant and humans are living in cages for safety and all that? The, say, and, and then yeah. your, the implication there is that we're still in that space of exotica. So that such that the 50s exotica is just the perfect lens for looking at something
1: about being modern that you wanted to... To bring to the surface, right? Exactly. Right. Right. Precisely. And from this point of view, exotica isn't just a sub-genre of mid-century music anymore. I very deliberately want to use the term exotica in a somewhat neologistic way. Got to understand, nobody called this music exotica in the 50s. That's a retrospective coinage. I think it came up in the 80s when collectors started discovering this music in thrift shops and in grandma's basement and so on. This wildly unpopular music, music that just seemed to be a straight transcription of the colonialist imagination that, of course, came under withering attack in mainstream culture during the Vietnam War. This music started being rediscovered in the 80s and in following (laughs) <laughs> the, the path that we see reenacted many times, starting off with like ironic mockery and then relaxing into unironic love and connoisseurship. As record collectors started getting into this music along that path, they came up with the term for it, exotica. But in its own day, it would have been called mood music. And the specific kind of moves that Exotica, like Les Baxter or Ema Sumac or Bob Drasnan, Arthur Lyman, Martin Denny, those kinds of artists, the kinds of stuff they were doing, that kind of stuff is specific to them. But the cultural movement that we've been talking about, the juxtaposition of multiple temporal horizons. So you just mentioned that quote from Fight Club. You know, that shows the interpenetration of the ultramodern and the archaic. Yeah. Where you imagine people climbing skyscrapers like on vines. Right. Like Tarzan, where you're imagining eight-lane superhighways being the places where people are pounding out strips of rawhide. You know, you're seeing these kind of collision of incommensurable temporal frames, which you see all the time in Pop Exotica. But that kind of... That kind of place of the imagination where we're juxtaposing those temporal horizons and also the horizons of like the self and the other, that dialectic of intimacy and distance, all of those more abstract cultural moves, that's really what I mean by exotica. So I'm sort of redefining exotica to talk about a current of cultural production in modernity, in the modern, that rehearses those moves. And also, I think...
0: uh, the deepest level, a kind of phenomenological reality that modernity as such must include in order to be modernity, a kind of alterity that's built into the whole project. And maybe it's not even modern. It's just part of being human, this type of thing. I mean, the the first hints of the plot twist, because like I said, the article starts out sounding a lot like typical historicist analysis. Uh, that, you know, basically you're just telling us about this music and how it did not do justice to the cultures it was claiming to um, to draw upon. In fact, if it was even drawing upon those cultures at all, et cetera. Right. But then there's a turn and you're moving more towards this more imaginal way, I guess, of interpreting that cultural phenomenon. Um, and there's this passage here, which I found brilliant. You write... While exotica imagining is not limited to music, nor even to the arts, neither is it limited to the Cold War, nor the 20th century, nor even modernity. In the most general sense, it relies on the aestheticization of lives. So there's something we could talk about. Whether they be other lives or one's own, exotica is the absorption of the real into the imaginary and the erosion of the boundaries between them. Or better, it is whatever makes a spectacle of this process. That's important part. Exotica is a spectacle of the real, to be consumed neither as reality nor as pure fantasy, but as some pleasurable, disquieting union of both. And for me, this is the moment where you're touching on, you know, something that we've discussed quite a few times on the show, the idea of the untimely, that kind of floating point where all the different eras of the past, well, first, where first of all, where the... The historical axis is disturbed, such that the future and the past become, they touch each other, where you enter a zone that is trans-historical, that might explain, like, like one thing I hear, when I listen to this music, I hear two things. I hear this signification of the primitive, right, of the quote-unquote primitive, of indigenous cultures or foreign exotic cultures coming into, through my, my hi-fi stereo and that kind of... But I also hear something that's more, and we talked about this in our discussion about Ghostface Killer. is that I also hear something science fiction y, something mm, extra, yeah. something extraterrestrial about it. And that episode, we talked about the theme music from Star Trek, which I guess kind of has that feel a little bit. And that um, we had a debate. I, I thought it was a theremin that made the, the melody, but you, you rightly uh, argued that it was a female voice, which it is. But there's this celestial quality to the voice that. In a certain context, might evoke something like ancient Greece or, or uh, you know, the ancient world—the idea of the the sibyls singing or some—I don't know—or
1: the sirens, because a lot of it sirens, comes by, right. from a piece by Debussy called Siren. Right, the sirens from the ancient ancient world,
0: or the call of the sirens heard out there in outer space by some astronauts exploring right. new worlds, exactly. and so something changes in our sense of our sense of world after the second world war. And I think that exotica is kind of a, is, is, is showing us that change. The, the world somehow becomes small, but in another sense, some other space opens up. Um, mm. and and mm. I feel it's just going on my, just my aesthetic reaction to the music. I, I get these images of, it seems to belong to the past and the future. Which is something that's captured in that line that you quote a couple of times here um, in the piece. uh, We are the primitives of an unknown culture, which is a fantastic, almost mantric uh, line that we could talk about for hours. But anyways, yeah.
1: Yeah, that's from Nanao Sakaki, who is a Japanese poet um, who was championed by Gary Snyder. So it's through Snyder that that phrase gained some currency in the 60s movement. Right, but at the same time, I
0: mean that line. We are primitives of a of an unknown culture. It's kind of the given, assumed perspective of any person who believes in the march of progress. Right, we all believe that in the future, or at least we used to believe, until the future disappeared on us. <laughs> uh, we believed that we were <laughs> headed towards something, some beautiful interstellar culture that we could hardly fathom but that we were the the primitives of, right? That the whole idea behind, um, this is not quite super germane, but the end of Planet of the Apes when he sees the Statue of Liberty, such that throughout Planet of the Apes, you think that he's on some other planet that is just right. beginning its evolutionary process towards producing humans. Whereas in fact, he's later, he's after history in the yeah. distant future. Yeah. So the, the way those, the past and the future in uruburos like fashion kind of, close in on themselves and and, and devour one another is, is really palpable in exotica. Right.
1: Or another metaphor or way of putting it, way of picturing it, would be of something breaking through a surface. This reminds me of something that Lou Welch, a countercultural writer publishing something in the San Francisco Oracle, he is in a prophetic mode here writing about what happens as radical youth break up the technocratic modern regime and imagines that, uh, quote, underneath this thin skin of city, the green will come back and crack these sidewalks. Yeah, That would be one way of thinking about it. And in that passage that I quote from Fight Club, you have the same kind of thing where he says, picture yourself planting radishes and seed potatoes on the 15th green of a forgotten golf course. You know, imagine like skyscrapers covered in vines, where you have something that's from the aseptic modern world, all glass and steel, repelling humanity and even life itself. And the idea that this is a hard but brittle shell and that with the adjustments in consciousness of the new generation, that facade, that carapace will start to break apart, will start to splinter and something truer, much more primitive, much more organic will begin to show through the cracks. So that would be another way of picturing the co-presence of the archaic and the ultra modern. Right, right. Yeah. And one that seems particularly well suited to that Cold War moment where you feel simultaneously as if everything is being covered in glass and steel, the um, mainstreaming of the Bauhaus, Mies van der Rohe, yeah, yeah. Um, ornament is crime <laughs> kind of ethos. And yet as it reaches, it's sort of an enantiadromia, an as it reaches a certain kind of like perfection of sterility, it reverses into its opposite and people imagining it all coming apart and revealing that which has been repressed.
0: Right. Right. Exactly. The return of the repressed, which yes. um, for Freud, who came up with that concept, was uh, at best a necessary part, a, a really unfortunate necessity, the return of the repressed in the in the right. psychoanalytic process towards wellness. You know, there's not much wellness in Freud at all. It's, it's all you can hope for is a kind of like um, peaceful coexistence with, with the real. But in what happens in the 60s, of course, is there's that reversal where the, the id... And the repressed is the good and um, the Dionysiac energy, which Exotica, I, I, I couldn't help while reading that. I, I couldn't help but read the whole Exotica phenomenon as it manifested in the 50s as a kind of prophecy or early tremor that all of Exotica was a distant early warning
1: of the 60s. Of the, the breakdown. Yeah. Um, Which, would, if you think of it that way, completely upends the conventional way that boomers have always understood exotica as the cast-off embarrassing remnant of their parents. Right. And always wanting to imagine their own response to the other being far more enlightened and much less colonialist and pith-hatted. And yet... You know, one reason why I insist on thinking of exotica not as a subgenre of music but as a cultural move is that I feel like you can see that cultural move enacted on a more ambitious scale in the 60s, which is completely counter to the self-understanding of movement participants. If you told them that they were acting out the same kind of scripts as in uh, LP records in their mom's basement, <laughs> they probably would have been very offended. And yet, I love your idea of pop exotic as almost like a premonitory shudder of this huge cultural phenomenon. that's starts- coming. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
0: And that comes clear to me as a possible, at least a a plausible interpretation when I think of exotica in light of a kind of longer history of how foreign or exotic cultures are depicted by the West or in the West. Like, for instance, in the 19th century, the great seafaring literature of that century was all about exposing or uh, revealing the secrets of distant exotic cultures. But that literature unfolded in a world where those cultures really were distant and exotic, like in, in yeah. like they were, they were far away. I mean, it took if you wanted to go to the South Pacific Islands from like England, from Liverpool, that was a long freaking trip, and yeah, yeah. there was a good chance you didn't come back from that trip. Yeah, so no telegraph, no radio. It was basically the same, the equivalent, almost the equivalent of going to Mars for us today, or for a society that's able to actually go to Mars. But the point being that. Exotica uses a lot of the same moves as that type of exotic literature from the 19th century. The only thing is that whereas when I read Moby Dick or Typee, Melville's first novel in that vein, or you know what little I've read of the other stuff that they had at the time, when I read that stuff, I get the sense that the world is very very big, right? I, I get into that 19th century sense of a huge world with parts unknown and things left to discover. In Exotica from the 50s, it's the same code, the same set of signifiers, but they seem to evoke a small world, a world that is fully surveyable to the enlightened Music listener, uh, right. a world that you can fly over from place to place, flutter about, yep. borrow a little from here, a little from there, and that to me is something. A that, snow
1: globe world.
0: Yeah, exactly, exactly. A terrarium, and um, <laughs> the way. And uh, I know it's this is probably wrong to read something I wrote in your piece in an episode on you on your stuff, no, but please, I, no, I just please. I'd love to get to see how this fits in because in um, this is a piece I wrote for. Canadian Notes and Queries last year it's basically an essay on Hiroshima Mon Amour, the French film and also Melancholia by Lars von Trier and also the song Africa by Toto so there's this one part where I wrote I'm just going to read it because I don't remember exactly how I put it Uh, We can see how the world changed after 1945 and the way the collective imagination saw the earth before and after that year. Until Hiroshima, the planet found its most compelling metaphors in images of vastness and empire, and in narratives of conquest, exploration, discovery, war, and new frontiers. This is all from the perspective of the West, of course. The Cold War, occasioned by the bomb, changed this by reimagining the world as an abstract geopolitical surface to be probed and surveyed. Not just land, but empty space became territory in the age of radar and satellites. By the time the Cold War had given us the first full photograph of the planet in 1972, Earth had already ceased to be the solid ground that the author of Ecclesiastes assured us abides forever beneath the cruel vicissitudes of history. As the title of the photo, The Blue Marble, makes clear, the planet had become a small, fracturable object adrift in the void. The wonders once promised to explorers now had to be manufactured in the hyper-reality of simulacra and artifice, at least for those who couldn't become astronauts and leave our little blue planet behind altogether. Perhaps the world image that came to dominate after Hiroshima is best captured in Disney's hysterical ode to self-proclaimed innocence. It's a small world after all. The song recasts the vast expanses of earth as a surreal playground with little to offer by way of meaning, unless we pretend to find meaning in maudlin sentimentality. Okay, that's a little low, but it is worth (laughs) noting that upon seeing the blue marble photo, Martin Heidegger remarked, this is no longer the earth on which man lives. And that to me, I I get that sense from Exotica. I don't know. I get that post-war feeling.
1: Oh, certainly. That big blue marble feeling. Remember that show? No, maybe you were too young. There's a show called Big Blue Marble that was on in the 70s when I was a kid. Anyway, yeah, that Big Blue Marble world, you know, the world that exists as something mapped out and schematized. And you can no longer really believe in the ancient mystic wisdom of Tibet. Like, you know, people in the 1920s would have, because Tibet was not a place that was really mapped in the same way. It was mapped, but not in the same way, not rationalized, not put on a, Piece of fucking graph paper, you know what I mean? And yet, this is something that Kripel, Jeff Kripel points out in his book *Mutants and Mystics*, which is my favorite of his books. Which is saying something. He's written a lot of good ones. He points out how, throughout the 19th century into the 20th century, all of the places where you could place the mystic wisdom or the forgotten wisdom, or you know something extraordinary and beyond the mundane, like. We're sort of hunting down all of the little last remaining wild spaces, all the last remaining pockets of parts unknown, all the last parts of the map that say, here be dragons. We're erasing those. Those are all being brought under the domain of rational administration. And he points out that the kind of spiritual imagination simply starts reaching further and further away. And so... You start having visitations by aliens. All of a sudden, aliens, extraterrestrials, people from off the planet. That's where wisdom is located, right? Right. And I feel like Cold War pop exotica is making a similar kind of move, perhaps unconsciously, that all of a sudden the exotic locales include underwater, the the undersea. Right. Or outer space. You know, there's um, a whole subgenre of space exotica that uh, that Meredith, our show assistant, uh, is into in her own work. And so you can kind of see a kind of a move towards opening up the frontiers that have just been closed. That perhaps is another important part of what I'm calling exotica.
0: passage here that I highlighted. Exotica and the 1960s counterculture make a spectacle of the real and in doing so come to share a vague boundary between the real and the imagined. To ask questions of exotica is not only to think about music but also to ponder more broadly our capacity for exotica imagining, for offering up other cultures as items of coarse delectation and making spectacle out of other lives and for consuming the resulting hybrid of fantasy and ethnography as a kind of truth. So again, in listening to this show, a listener might be thinking, well, I'm seeing how Exotica tells us a lot about the modern West, specifically modern America, and how it perceived the world and its place in it. But in the last part of the essay, the crucial part, the reversal you make calls us to see that without denying or negating any of that, that there is some kind of truth to be found in the, in this move, in this obliteration or this blurring of the line between real and imaginary. So can you talk to a little bit about what you're getting at there at the end?
1: This last sort of turn of the argument was very influenced by my discovery of Jack Smith, who I owe to Scott Buchanan, a wonderful film scholar and A guy I got to know when I was at Stanford for a couple of years on a postdoc. Jack Smith is a radical queer performance artist before that job description even existed. He was a remarkable guy. I talked about him in the Trash Stratum episode. And in many ways, he's sort of the poet laureate of the Trash Stratum. Somebody whose artistic process was a kind of alchemical transmutation of trash into gold. Taking avowedly trash culture, the particular example that he gives in the perfect filmic appositeness of Maria Montez essay that we mentioned at the beginning of the show, his move there is to talk particularly about the jungle flicks of a woman named Maria Montez, who would probably be completely forgotten now if it weren't for the fact that she was Jack Smith's muse. Smith, a gay man, was fascinated by this kind of like camp goddess figure of Maria Montez, a Dominican actress who appeared in a couple of now forgotten jungle movie cheapies from the World War II days. Probably the one that everybody remembers, if they remember anything of her at all, is a movie called Cobra Woman, which uh, Smith discusses obliquely in this essay. But Smith is making an argument about like why it mattered to him to rescue trash from the trash stratum. Why this was so important for him. He's raising these forgotten and silly films to the level of an aesthetic principle. And he's saying basically like there is a kind of belief that these cheesy old movies Compel. Let me see if I can find a good quote from this essay. Actually, I'm just going to read the very beginning of this short essay. At least in America, Maria Montez could believe she was the Cobra Woman, the Siren of Atlantis, Scheherazade, etc. She believed and thereby made the people who went to her movies believe. Those who could believe did. Those who saw the world's worst actress just couldn't, and they missed the magic. Too bad, their loss. Their magic comes from the most inevitable execution of the conventional pattern of acting. And he's talking about this kind of belief compelled by the inevitable execution of the conventional pattern of acting. He considers this to be a kind of a key to the buy in that we need. Like, you know, he he says that one of Maria Montez's, quote, "...atrocious acting size suffused a thousand tons of dead plaster with imaginative life and truth." If we are watching The Cobra Woman and we're looking at it as being like, oh, this is such a cheesy movie. So bad it's good. You know, the way right, right. that like all those shitty YouTube channels who are like everything wrong with Prometheus in 10 minutes or whatever. Right. right. Fucking lame clickbait bullshit by semi-literate barbarians. Um <laughs> Yeah. And let me tell you, Jack Smith was a hard banging motherfucker. He would have, if he was alive now, oh, I wish he was alive now just to talk shit about all these idiots who think they're doing camp, but they're actually doing kind of the opposite of camp. One of the points that Smith insisted on is that camp in the sort of redemptive sense of camp, camp that sticks to your ribs, that has some value, is not just a bunch of straight people saying, oh my God, this is so bad, it's good. No, right. It's like, no, 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 no. You see something that's cheesy or like as Smith likes to use the word moldy and you fully vibe with the corniness of it and In vibing with it, you get to a kind of imaginative truth, a marvelousness. My favorite line in this whole essay is something where he says, corniness is the other side of marvelousness. What person believing in a fantasy can bear to have its other side discovered? That is
0: so true. It's so true. If you can't afford or if you can't live with the possibility that you might come off as corny, you will never experience the marvelous, and that's yes. why i have I resent some of the surrealists who tried to um own that term the marvelous because a lot of them were completely incapable of being corny <laughs> that, yes. that, that that dropping that much modern, too high art well well the yeah, yeah, there's a kind of yeah, like, but a even sort in- of
1: constipated. Like, overeducated, Correct. high art way of like, we're getting down with the unconscious, but we've got to have all these fucking rules about like exactly how you do it with fucking Andre Breton. Yeah, yeah. This, yeah. Fanat- this fanatical systematizing asshole <laughs> yeah. in the realm of dreams, for fuck's sake. <laughs> Ridiculous. Oh,
0: Deleuze had some nasty things to say about the surrealists when he came to how they saw dreams. But, anyways, yeah, the, rightly the, so. The, the thing is that the risk of the marvelous, the risk of being enraptured by the marvelous is corniness. It's not even a risk. It's the other side. He's absolutely right. Yes. You will come off that way. Yes. And dropping that armature of irony, which is almost like a second skin to us in this yeah. in this era is as difficult maybe as it is absolutely essential. Non-negotiable if you're going to experience the Cobra woman using her using that term as a signifier for for
1: the marvelous itself, right? Not just seeing a representation of the Cobra Woman, but seeing the Cobra woman. Like if you believe, yeah, you get to see the Cobra woman. You get to see a true marvel. Yeah. If you don't believe, and if you are shielding yourself with that irony that as you Very rightly says our second skin, then you will miss the magic, and all you will see is the cheap plaster sets and the fucking science fair looking volcano and all of this stuff that cannot be attempted to be taken seriously. You will miss the magic, and yet there is magic there to be had. Right. But this is kind of the twist. This is the point that I'm making. The critical stance that is not only habitual, but practically compulsory for humanities academics, especially if they're going to be talking about something as ethically questionable as exotica, as exotica pop, which as I say, trades in the conventionalized representation of others, of ethnic others. You know, I cannot imagine anything that would be more calculated to provoke a storm of critique in our age. But the thing is that the critique is what's going to keep you from investing that quality of belief in fantasy. It will forever keep you away from the corniness that is the other side of marvelousness, which means that it will forever keep you away from the marvelousness. Exactly. And, so, and this is basically Smith's whole point in this marvelous essay. And this is how he ends it. He says, I finished this article. A friend, David Gurin, came to tell me, quote, I came to tell you tonight I saw a young man in the street with a plastic rose in his mouth, declaiming, I am Maria Montez. I am M.M. M. Smith continues, a nutty manifestation, true, but in some way a true statement. Some way we must come to understand that person. Not worth understanding, perhaps, but understanding is a process, not the subject it chooses. But that process has a Maria Montez department as well as a film department, and you bought this magazine for (laughs) a (laughs) dollar. Fucking Um, love this essay. And just uh, to provide a bit of
0: exegesis, I'll just read another passage from your paper. Towards the end, you write, we can write papers about game shows or pornography or whatever else we like. But in ways that make them occasions for readings of culture that will open up some new portal to meaning—race meaning, gender meaning, class meaning—this isn't the kind of reading that Smith understood as that which exotic spectacle demands. Smith wants to reclaim its faded, moldy beauty through passionate identification. Strange as it sounds to quote an Old Testament prophet— in writing above the godfather of radical queer performance art, Smith's hermeneutic stance is Isaiah's if you do not believe, you will not understand. Exotica aesthetics assume a certain kind of belief and participation, and when intellectuals handle this music with the hermeneutic equivalent of tongs and a hazmat suit, they are, in a sense, not hearing it at all. I don't think it's all that strange to quote an Old Testament prophet in that context, precisely because of the subversive role that the Old Testament prophet played in ancient Israel, which was very much that of a queer performance art. I mean, there's, there are a few, hmm. there, that's a
1: perfect description of what Old Testament prophecy was, queer performance art. Well, uh, except without the queerness, perhaps. I don't know if there's quite the same gender ambiguity. Queer meaning queer, <laughs> weird. Peculiar. Peculiar.
0: Yeah. So it makes sense. Uh, And I think you're right to say that his stance is Isaiah's. I do think that it's it's about wanting to look where other people don't want to look and wanting to believe in what people feel they would lose themselves if they believed, which is why your mention of identification is so key in this context. Identifying with the other so that you can become something you didn't know you
1: could be. And this brings me to kind of last place I want to go, which is Why I titled this essay Taboo, and I believe that Exotica in the way that I develop it is a very big taboo, a very troublesome ghost, a poltergeist in our house that we are always dealing with. It's always flinging shit around and breaking our plates. I mean, the figure of taboo is uh, sort of a cliche of mid-century Exotica pop, the – Heavy breathing lighter notes of Les Baxter albums are always going on about, uh, you know, the taboo rights of this and the secret order of that. So taboo, that which is forbidden, is kind of a theme, especially because, you know, you have the sort of like the old colonialist hands, anxious desire for union with a sexualized other, and yet the need to hold yourself apart and aloof from these primitives Uh, A a very um, racist and colonialist perspective, of course. So, taboo, obviously, is going to function as a a figure in those kinds of colonialist fantasies where, you know, I'm not supposed to have sex with somebody who's different from me, but here I am having sex with them (laughs) in my imagination. Yeah. Ooh, the frisson of taboo. But... There's also a sense in which the Exotica imagination enacts a very, very big taboo for us now. So by introducing the 60s movement and talking about, for example, Captain Beefheart's Trout Mask replica and one track, particularly Orange Claw Hammer one of the acapella tracks from Trout Mask Replica that really is intended to sound like a field recording from an archaic, pre-modern American civilization that never existed. A thick cloud called a cub's tail A match struck blue On a railroad rail The old puff horse was just pulling through And a man wore a peg leg Forever I'm on the bum where the hobos run. There breaks with filthy chatter. Oh, I don't care. There's no place there. I don't think it matters. In uh, bringing up items of, you know, 60s alternative culture in the case of Trout Mask Replica, it's still kind of an icon of alternative culture today. I'm making a counterintuitive move because, as I said, you know, like boomers always want to look at mid-century exotica, cultural product of the previous generation, look at that as an example of what they're not going to do. They're not going to sexualize conventionalized others, right? But what they did as a culture, as a general tendency, was just as you said earlier, to sort of, if you're creating a frame for conventionalized others, you're going to step through the frame. You're not just going to say, oh, how did I put it, actually? There's a decent line in my... The counterculture could have taken, we are primitives of an unknown culture as its slogan, well, what had been missing in mid-century was the countercultural sense of identification and unmediated immersion, the we are part. Right. I quote something from a great essay by Rebecca Layden. In the music of Les Baxter and other post-war pop musicians, the exotic is kept at a distance, confined to its theatrical arena, but at the same time it beckons, inviting the listener to escape into a fantasy of identification, end quote. And I continue, in the 50s, those enthralled by exotica representations drew a frame around their encounter with otherness and then As this is the bit that you quoted in the 60s, people wanted to step through that frame. So – I'm already doing something that where, you know, I've, I'm interested in writing about this stuff because I want to draw a fuller history of that cultural reflex I call exotica. But I also want to stick my thumb in the eye of boomer historiography where there were like, you know, the the assumed moral superiority to their parents. Oh, we're not exoticizing anybody. You totally fucking are. It's obvious. Just look at the fucking San Francisco Oracle images from that beautifully illustrated underground paper, are just jammed with updated versions of that imaginary, but with the difference being that instead of just drawing a frame around it and imagining this as, as a life that belongs to other people and an imaginary version of myself, I imagine it like, what if I actually lived there? Yeah, exactly. But the thing is that in making that move, have you really completely expunged all hints of colonialism and racism? I don't think you do. And so we are still left with this open question like, okay, so what would be a good engagement with the other as opposed to an exotica engagement with the other? And the problem is that there's no sure test. This is an apple we keep taking bites from. We keep coming back to this. We keep wanting to believe that we have transcended the moral problems of previous generations in their exotic representations. And we imagine that we now are beyond exotica. And so like, oh, yeah, I'm not listening to Les Baxter albums. Instead, I'm going to go to, you know, my hipster record store, Landlocked Records, Represent. It's a fucking awesome record store here in Bloomington. And I'm going to find, you know, a carefully curated selection of music from. I don't know, British Guiana circa 1972 or whatever. Some kind of like carefully archival, responsibly produced package that is not serving this up as a falsified, bogus, professional wrestling version of culture, but the real thing. But we can never really know whether our consumption of that meticulously curated otherness Is really all that different from all the other instrumentalizing and objectifying. And me saying this is not me saying, therefore, we must redouble our attempts to purge all hints of exotica from our souls, because quite frankly, I don't think we ever can. It keeps coming back because ultimately we are interested in others and ultimately we're human beings and we're limited and we can't help but make things about ourselves. And so the exotica mode keeps coming back again and again, another return of the report And every time it does, it makes us deeply uncomfortable because it is this unquiet ghost of our own treachery, right? And the treachery of images. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean,
0: I just finished reading Martin Buber's I and Thou. And right now the answer seems so crystal clear (laughs) that any mode of interpretation of the other that is in the I-it modality that makes the other an it as opposed to a thou. No matter how noble the intention, no matter how enlightened or woke or whatever uh, the language used or the approach taken, it doesn't matter. I it is I it. I it has already reduced all things, including the I to an it. Everything is an it. And so nothing will ever touch anything else. Everything will exist as discrete objects floating in a meaningless void. Ultimately, that is the image that haunts every I-it utterance. Of course, the I-it is essential. We can't function without it. But we can at least make space in our culture. Well, I mean, hopefully in our culture, but I think reasonably in each of our lives as individual people in this world, We can all make space for an I-thou. And an I-thou is when you approach something that is not you, whether it's something from a distant land or something from down your street, it doesn't matter. And you look at it and you say thou, you say you. And in saying, hey, you, you give that thing a right to exist by itself outside of its relation with you. You've stopped triangulating all things onto you. yeah, And this entire business of exploitation imperialism colonialism even if just for a
1: moment is suspended in a, a more expansive space absolutely I, you know and what i didn't have the i didn't have the conceptual vocabulary or the equipment to formulate this thought back when i wrote this essay but basically that shift which is fundamentally a moral one from I-it to I-thou, from going from saying it, that the world is full of its to the world is full of thous. That is the moral gesture that also pushes us through that boundary between the corny and the marvelous. You know, with exotica, you start with the corny, with the phenomenon, the aesthetic phenomenon on its corny side. But if you engage with it, with that kind of wholehearted immersion and identification that Jack Smith demands. You pass from the corny to the marvelous, but you also pass from the it to the thou.
0: If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on your favourite podcasting platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, visit the Weird Studies subreddit, and, of course, support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel, and the show is made with the assistance of Meredith Michael. Thank you for listening.